Bhagavad Gita, or Lord God Song, stands as the Hindu religious and philosophical text that has long held the widest attention in the West. It also continues to have major significance within India. Indeed, so sophisticated are the teachings by the Divine Krishna in the Gita that leaders across the political spectrum have cited and relied on it. This text deserves our close attention so we can begin to understand its broad significance in Indian and in world history. Mondas Mahatma Gandhi quoted and expanded on the Gita throughout his career. He found passages in the Gita on which to build his ideas both as a nonviolent leader for India's independence from the British Raj and also as a strong advocate for the moral reform of Indian society. In fact, just days before his assassination in 1948, Gandhi once again explained the Gita, this final time to a visiting American journalist, Vincent Shin. But the man who assassinated Gandhi also used the Gita to justify his action. Naturam Godse studied the Gita through much of his life, and particularly as he and his co-conspirators planned the assassination. In his murder trial, Godse relied on the Gita in his judicial defense of his action. He cited the Gita extensively in his last letter to his own parents, and he carried a treasured copy of the Gita with him as he walked to his execution by hanging. So while Gandhi saw nonviolence as the main teaching of the Gita, his assassin saw the moral need to kill Gandhi in that same text. Beyond these two, over many centuries, many diverse Indian philosophers, nonviolent and violent revolutionaries, warriors, and various types of Hindu nationalists have all believed the Gita to be the foundation for their different ideas and actions. So widespread in India is interest in the Gita, there, there have been more than 225 different commentaries on it in Sanskrit alone, plus another approximately 1,500 translations of the Gita into 34 other Indian languages. The lunar anniversary of Krishna's exposition of the Gita is a Hindu holiday every day, every year. Outside of India, the Gita has also held long prominence as a representative of the best of Indian religion and philosophy. It was first translated from its original Sanskrit into English and published in London in 1785 by Charles Wilkins. Ever since, it has fascinated many diverse Westerners. There are now about 2,000 translations of the Gita into more than 75 different languages around the world, including more than 300 translations into English alone. Again, a wide array of non-Indian people have relied on the Gita, including quite a few Americans. Ralph Waldo Emerson and Walt Whitman both quoted it in their work and built upon its ideas in different ways. Later, when the American father of the atomic bomb, J. Robert Oppenheimer, observed its first awesome explosion on July 16, 1945, at Los Alamos, New Mexico, he could think of no way to describe it except by quoting from his own personal translation of the Gita 
from Sanskrit into English. Oppenheimer called it the radiance of a thousand suns. And he called himself and his colleagues saying, now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. The composer Philip Glass opened and closed his 1979 major work, Sajagraha, with verses from the Gita sung operatically in Sanskrit. The master jazz saxophonist, John Coltrane, included chanted passages from the Gita in English in his 1968 album, Om. More recently, in 2013, when the Honorable Tulsi Gabbard was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives as a self-described first Hindu-American congresswoman, she chose to swear her oath of office, not on the Bible, but on the Gita. Indeed, this was the same copy of the Gita that she had carried with her for solace during her two tours of duty as an American soldier in the Middle East. The following year, in her act of deepest respect, she presented her own treasured copy of the Gita to the then newly elected Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi. So the Bhagavad Gita has long resonated with a wide array of people within India and around the world. In this lecture, we'll explore the emic and edic origins of the Bhagavad Gita, its complex, multi-layered message, and why it has been used so widely and diversely in Indian and in world history for so long. During the last lecture, we saw that the huge book of war, the Mahabharata, culminates in a disastrously destructive 18-day melee between two sets of royal cousins fighting for the throne of their North Indian kingdom. On the eve of that battle, Arjuna, the best warrior on the Pandava side, despairs of the inevitable carnage, throws down his bow, and decides to surrender to his cousins rather than to seek to slaughter them and the elders of his clan who supported them. Arjuna's cousin, brother-in-law, and charioteer, Prince Krishna, drives Arjuna into the no-man's land between the impassioned, bloodthirsty armies. There, Krishna answers Arjuna's existential doubts by elucidating the nature of the cosmos, the ideal paths for humans, and their relationship to the divine. The Bhagavad Gita is only 700 poetic verses long, taking about 90 minutes to recite in Sanskrit. In contrast, the Mahabharata as a whole contains some 100,000 couplets. However, in Enoch terms, the Gita stands at the emotional peak of the Mahabharata. It is God revealing himself and his message to Arjuna at the center of the battlefield and to humanity as a whole. For believers, the Gita is located and the factual history of this awesome war. But it's also more than simply factual. The Gita is the eternal transcendent truth for all people, universally and timelessly. But many Eddic scholars assess its location as dramatically awkward, as a philosophical and religious interruption of the narrative flow of the Mahabharata as a whole. With the two impatient, ferocious armies realistically pause for an hour and a half of philosophizing before launching their weapons. What's more, how could those thousands of warriors actually hear what was said so far in front of them? Besides, up to this point in the Mahabharata, 
the speaker, Krishna, has not been presented as particularly divine. Instead, he's mostly only appeared as a princely warrior. He's not even described as an especially central figure. He serves as Arjuna's chariot driver, customarily a relatively low-ranked job. So that too makes the Gita stand out from the rest of the narrative. Nor, by implication, are the core ideas of the Gita particularly cited or enacted subsequently in the Mahabharata. After the Gita ends and the battle commences, Arjuna hides ignobly between, behind a human shield, Amba, who was born as a woman, but then transgendered into a man. Arjuna treacherously shoots his own half-brother in the back during a truce. Arjuna's eldest brother deliberately lies in order to kill their Brahmin teacher. And his next elder brother bathes in their enemy's blood. None of this seems to show that Arjuna or his brothers acted on the lessons presented in the Gita or even to take them to heart. Additionally, there are religious and philosophical differences between the Gita and the rest of the Mahabharata. Many of the earlier parts of the Mahabharata celebrate war, as did the Kshatriya warriors, who were the main audience for it. But later sections of the Mahabharata, like the Gita, present the gore and agony caused by battle as regretful or tragic. Therefore, many of the most vital ideas in the Gita had not yet been seen before in the Mahabharata, or in any other text of Indian culture up to that time. As a result of all of this, many Edic scholars question the Gita's origin and place within the Mahabharata. Many regard it as a late and implausible insertion into the text, perhaps written by a separate author or authors. Later authors often added to older texts in light of their own sensibilities. So we can understand how this discourse by Krishna as a god may have come into the text. If popular reverence for the god Krishna was growing within North Indian society over the centuries of the composition of the Mahabharata, then his devotees would expect him to appear prominently in it. If Krishna had not been there before, then his devotees would have had a great incentive to add him in a prominent place, however unprecedented that was. So many Edic scholars date the Gita to the later period of composition of the Mahabharata, not before 200 BCE, and possibly much more recently than that. Recall that many Edic scholars regard the Mahabharata as a whole as having been composed by multiple authors over roughly nine centuries, from the late Vedic period onward, with the final versions fully compiled only by the 4th or 5th century CE. So different authors must have contributed different sections or versions of the text, inserting new episodes and editing or deleting others, depending on what they sincerely believed should be included or not. In both religious and in technical terms, the structure of Indian narratives like the Mahabharata during that period made, su made such insertions, amendments, and deletions relatively easy. The Veda, you'll recall, was preserved perfectly over thousands of years because it was kruti, heard cosmic truth that could not be altered. In contrast, texts like the Mahabharata were classed as shmurti, that which is remembered or traditional. That means shmurti texts were considered, even from an emic perspective, as divinely inspired but human compositions with less sacredness than the Vedas. Indeed, many shorty texts were openly modified 
Some of these texts refer to earlier versions and criticize other authors or editors of that same Shurti text. So on one hand, the Mahabharata is emically a factual history of this great war. But on the other, it stands as part of a genre that explicitly discusses how many different authors contributed to and changed each work. In addition, over the centuries that the Mahabharata remained an oral tradition, the text is so huge that it was rarely recited continuously as a whole. So each reciter had to exercise some judgment about what to include, alter, or omit. Even after the Mahabharata was written down, it could be physically altered relatively easily or even inadvertently. Keep in mind that Indian culture does, did not use paper until many centuries later. Instead, the traditional mode of writing was using a pointed stylus to inscribe letters on palm leaves or bark that had been flattened, cut into extended rectangles, and polished smooth. Sometimes by rubbing charcoal or other dark matter into the lettering, the text might be highlighted against the light tan-colored palm leaf background. Since each copy of each palm leaf manuscript was handwritten, even the best scribe made inadvertent errors. Any scribe could alter the text to conform to what that scribe believed should be there, even if it was not in the text being copied. Beyond that, palm leaves are themselves inherently physically fragile. Corners and edges easily break off, leaving gaps in the text. This impermanence of the medium was made worse by the alternating hot-dry and hot-damp of India's environment that rapidly decayed all such organic matter. Scribes had to frequently recopy texts, even as the older ones molded, rotted, and became illegible. This frequent recopying again introduced unintentional and also intentional changes in each copy, while the original text soon became unusable. Within a generation or two, many different copies existed with no original to check them against. Given the physical size of each palm leaf, only a limited amount of information could be inscribed on each leaf, even using the tiniest of letters. But since the custom was to read these texts out loud to often illiterate audiences, the letters should be not so small that they were hard to read smoothly. Each episode of the Mahabharata works best if it was only one palm leaf long, so episodes might be edited to fit that physical length. This meant that any text of substantial length had to go onto multiple palm leaves. The Mahabharata, you'll recall, is about 1.8 million words, so that's a huge number of leaves. In order to keep these leaves in sequence, one or more holes were inserted for string to tie them in the right order. More holes meant more cracks and more lost fragments. Strings eventually broke, leaving a pile of disordered leaves, so the order of episodes could easily be changed as they were tied together again. Or some leaves, and thus episodes, could be lost forever. Further, anyone who wanted to untie the knot could add or remove one or more leaves without any trace. So the physical structure of Indian books also contributed to the impermanence of the content and the variation among versions. And this is very different from our own experience of the post-Gutenberg printed and bound book, where a whole print run of hundreds or even thousands of copies 
are each exactly identical. We can all turn to the same page and read the same line exactly in the same place on any printed copy. However, mechanical printing on paper did not become widespread in South Asia until the 19th century. So books up to that time were something very different, which we should keep in mind when thinking about Indian source material. All this means that the Gita could very well have been added quite late in the comp compilation of the Mahabharata. This would explain the sudden prominence of Krishna and his innovative message, which was so different in tone from the rest of the text. Additionally, the Gita also displayed later philosophical developments. These were ones that many Hindu thinkers continued to draw upon. Indeed, many people, both within India and without, have come to treat the Gita as a freestanding text, quite apart from the rest of the Mahabharata. Even if it was not something historically inserted into the Mahabharata, the Gita became something that people around the world have deliberately extracted from it. For example, the most scholarly translation by the Euro-American J.A.B. Van Boynton was published as a separate volume in 1981 by the University of Chicago Press. The most popular devotional translation was made in 1968 by Swami Prabhupada. Over 23 million copies of his English version alone were distributed by his International Society for Krishna Consciousness, better known as the Hare Krishna Movement. So many readers know the Gita without necessarily knowing anything about the rest of the Mahabharata. Now let's look at what Krishna teaches in the Bhagavad Gita, specifically in response to Arjuna's doubts, but also to address the doubts of all thinking human beings. Facing the impending carnage of battle, Arjuna questions the purpose of life, specifically his obligation to kill another human being, especially his elders, cousins, and teachers. How can that killing be psychologically or morally justified under any circumstances? Arjuna bemoans, Krishna, when I see all my family poised for war, my limbs falter and my mouth goes dry. There is a tremor in my body and my hairs bristle. My mind seems to whirl. I see no good to come from killing my family in battle. Nothing but guilt will accrue to us if we kill. Better if our enemy were to kill me, unarmed and defenseless, on the battlefield. I will not fight. To this very human dilemma, Krishna provides multiple and multi-layered answers, which have enabled people from an array of political and moral positions to draw support and guidance from the Gita. One major message from the Gita is that all life in this manifest world is impermanent. Every being will die. So it should not be psychologically or morally troubling either to die or to kill in accordance with a higher principle. Some advocates of nonviolence, like Gandhi, stressed the former. That is, one should be prepared to die for a larger principle. Do not fear death if you are sincere in your commitment to your ideal. Others, like Gandhi's assassin and other violent revolutionaries, concluded that it's fully justified to kill for a higher principle. Do not let the lives of even innocent people, let alone guilty ones, hold you back squeamishly from the larger and overriding goal, 
like revolution or the liberation of your nation from imperialism or oppression or immorality. More specifically, in Hindu terms, the individual self or Atman is only misperceived by many people living in this world as being separate from Brahman, the ground of universal being or oneness. So again, either to die or to kill only relates to the self as if it had existence independent of the cosmos, which it does not. In the Gita, then, we find one of the earliest full Hindu explanations of rebirth or metempsychosis. Each Atman is born, dies, is reborn, and re-dies until moksha or release is realized, and one re-emerges with the universal Brahman, the ground of all being. As Krishna put it, as a man discards his worn-out clothes and puts on different ones that are new, so the one in the body discards aged bodies and joins with others that are new. This idea became central to many later philosophical and religious traditions. If life and death are futile, though, what's the point of any action? Why, then, should I or anyone else act in the world, Arjuna asks. In response, Krishna teaches that one must act in the world, but at the same time, one must discipline oneself not to desire or even consider the consequences of one's actions. Throughout the Gita, Krishna elaborates various paths to achieve this liberation from desire. For discipline or method, he uses the Sanskrit term yoga, from the same Indo-European root word that produces the English word yoke. One path prescribed by Krishna is the discipline of action, karma yoga. Each of us has a swadharma, or our own specific duty and code for conduct, that we should follow selflessly. Arjuna's dharma is as a male kshatriya, a warrior. So he should fight and, if need be, kill or die honorably. As Krishna puts it, holding alike happiness and unhappiness, gain and loss, victory and defeat, yoke yourself to battle, and so do not incur evil or bad karma. That is, do not refrain from acting but rather act selflessly. By acting according to Swadharma, regardless of the fruits of those actions, all moral questions and doubts disappear. Another path that Krishna preaches is the discipline of knowledge, jnana yoga. By acting in the world while fully understanding its transitory nature and also the transcendent ground of all being, we do not desire anything. The enlightened mind can prevent the senses from attaching themselves to things or beings in this transitory world. As Krishna explains, quote, Wise are they who see no difference between a learned, well-mannered Brahmin, a cow, an elephant, a dog, and an eater of dogs. In this way, we come to understand fully the nature of the divine. This insight makes all moral questions and doubts disappear. Further, Krishna prescribes what many people within India and without think of as meditative yoga. Quote, keeping outside the impressions from the outside world, centering the gaze between the eyebrows, evening inhalation and exhalation within the nostrils, controlling senses, mind and spirit, 
totally devoted to release, with no trace left of desire, fear, or anger. Thereby, the seer is released forever. This control makes all moral questions and doubts disappear. The next and most innovative path is the discipline of devotion, or bhakti-yoga. By acting in the world with total devotion to the divine, we do not desire anything. This devotion makes all moral questions and doubts disappear. Now, the concept of bhakti was not developed in many Hindu texts prior to the Bhagavad Gita, but it would become a vital strand of Indian culture and religion thereafter. Building on this concept, Krishna reveals in the Gita to Arjuna the unimaginable nature of the divine. But Arjuna, like most people, cannot comprehend or even endure the totality of divinity. When he looks into Krishna and sees inexorable time itself, it is so awesome that Arjuna begs Krishna to return to his limited human earthly form. Later bhakti movements have all had to grapple with the infinity of the divine and the limits of human existence in this world. In the Gita, Krishna also opens the path of devotion to all human beings, regardless of their birth. He's not himself a Brahmin, but rather Kshatriya, like Gautama the Buddha and Mahavir, the founder of Jainism. Unlike the Brahmanic tradition, Krishna does not base his authority on the sacred Vedas. Instead, Krishna speaks directly as the divine to Arjuna and to all people. He connects without intermediaries to everyone. Therefore, anyone can act out of love for God, often in a personal form as Krishna appears for Arjuna. Even the humblest offering or the offering of oneself to those with nothing else is received equally by God. Krishna promises anyone who, quote, proffers to me with love a leaf, a flower, fruit, or water, I accept this offering from him. Even a hardened criminal who loves me and none other is to be deemed a saint. Even people of low origins and women can achieve this. This makes bhakti accessible to men and women of all varnas and jatis, at all stages in their lives, and in all conditions. The path of bhakti, then, both challenges the orthodox Brahmanic structures of Hinduism and also strengthens Hinduism by incorporating diverse people committed to its deities on an intense personal level. But what's especially innovative about the Gita is the idea that God loves his devotees as much or even more than they love God. However, however often in the latter bhakti movements, the devotee had to wait impatiently for God to reach down and pluck him or her from the disorder and futility of the manifest world. The metaphor often used is that of humans waiting God's grace, like women in many social traditions have to wait a male lover to bring them to union. Throughout the Gita, Krishna offers Hindus a way to salvation that does not depend on the Vedas, on ritual sacrifice of Brahmins, or by status in birth. Instead, men and women could achieve transcendence through their own individual actions. This message continues to appeal to many in India and also to people in general. In addition to Hindus who sought a better path to the divine, often outside the established Brahmanic model of Varnas, there were those who joined and followed alternative religious traditions. Often these were merchants and artisans, ranked lower by Brahmins, but nonetheless gaining in wealth and power through economic developments of the 5th century BCE onward. These stresses between the Brahmanic model and the actual social structure 
led to the emergence of new religious traditions. In the next two lectures, we'll consider two of the most prominent of those new religions, Jainism and then Buddhism. Each also led to new political structures and indeed to India's first empire.